Good afternoon. Welcome to the North Carolina Court of Appeals. I am Judge Allegra Collins. To my right is Judge Jeffrey Carpenter. To my left is Judge April Wood. Our clerk today is Mr. Roderick McFarland, and our Deputy Marshal is Officer Richard Remillard. We have two cases on the calendar today, Keene versus Keene, number 2346, and Hoagland versus Duke University Health, number 23546. So we will stay in session after the first argument, but we will be at ease while the attorneys um, change over. So our first case is Keene versus Keene. Are you ready to proceed? Maybe good. Good afternoon, and may it please the court. My name is Kip Nelson, here on behalf of the appellant, Warren Keene. If I may, I'd like to reserve five minutes for rebuttal. Thank you. Your Honors, in 2005, before they were married, the parties entered into a written agreement. That contract is the foundation of this case. But in 2018, when Mr. Keene announced that the marriage wasn't working, Ms. Deline decided she would ignore the contract and obtain as much property for herself as she could. She did that by bringing claims that she promised not to bring, by taking money for herself out of the party's joint bank accounts, and by getting $285,000 for her exclusive use and benefit through a loan on which Mr. Keene is personally liable. The district court held that there was nothing to be done, and Mr. Keene had no right to seek relief for any such conduct. That was error, and the district court's judgment should be reversed. There are three principal issues on appeal. First is the district court's dismissal of Mr. Keene's claims. Second is the district court's analysis of debt under the premarital agreement. And third is the district court's failure to apply the plain language of the agreement. So turning first to the dismissal of Mr. Keene's counterclaims, there's no dispute in this case that the agreement entered into by the parties is valid and enforceable. When one party violates the terms of a contract, the other party has a right to seek relief by bringing a claim for breach of contract and seeking remedies such as monetary damages, specific performance, or other relief. That is precisely what Mr. Keene did here. But the district court took that right away. It held that Mr. Keene had no right to seek any relief under the premarital agreement. Well, I think that the, the court said that he didn't have any right to relief for claims that he didn't notice correctly. Am I not mistaken? Um, no, Judge Collins. It, he addressed the issue of what was alleged in the counterclaim, but also held that Mr. Keene could not pursue any claim because there were no promises or um, other opportunities for specific performance under the agreement. So in other words, there was no claim that he could have brought. And he reached this conclusion by applying an affirmative defense of waiver and, and held that because the contract included waiver of certain rights, that Mr. Keene could therefore not enforce the terms of the agreement. There are several problems with that analysis. First, Ms. Deline never alleged waiver. In her reply to the counterclaim, she never pled an affirmative defense of waiver. And in the litigation, when Ms. Deline attempted to insert belated affirmative defenses, the district court actually struck those affirmative defenses as a sanction for her discovery misconduct. So it's unclear how the second judge, Judge Young, could have then um, created this affirmative defense on Ms. Deline's behalf at the time of summary judgment. But even the analysis itself was flawed. The, the district court held that because the contract included a waiver of certain rights, that therefore that somehow precluded Mr. Keene from pursuing claims under the contract. 
But contracts, of course, include all sorts of provisions. And the fact that there's a waiver of one right does not mean that a party is precluded from seeking enforcement of the terms of the agreement. Here again, Mr. Keene specifically alleged breaches in his counterclaim and sought the remedies under a claim for breach of contract and specific performance. The, the other interesting thing here is that an earlier judge had specifically held that no essential element of Mr. Keene's counterclaims was lacking. When Ms. Deline had earlier moved for summary judgment, there was an order entered, and Judge Hedrick in the district court at that time said again there was no essential element lacking. And yet when Mr. Keene moved for summary judgment, the second judge, Judge Young, held not only that the summary judgment motion should be denied, but also that Mr. Keene's elements were lacking and that he couldn't pursue a claim. That, of course, One question, just clarify for me exactly what property are we arguing over right now? We have the loan from the line of equity, correct? That, that is one aspect, yes. And the $14,000. That is. Can, can, you just, can you just enumerate for me exactly what we're arguing over? Yes, so the $285,000 from the loan, mm -hmm. the $14,000 taken from a joint banking account, and then there was an additional $1,000 taken from another joint account. So those are the monetary amounts um, that Mr. Keene raised. But of course, he also raised more generally a failure to comply with the terms of the agreement, specifically bringing claims that Ms. Deline had promised not to bring, failure to um, discuss the division of joint property in good faith as the agreement um, required. So there are other claims, Judge Collins, that aren't based on those specific monetary amounts that the district court also dismissed. Okay. Well, didn't the issue uh, become, uh, regarding the raising of equitable distribution and alimony become moot when she dismissed those claims? Um, not at all, Judge Wood, because the, <laughs> the, the entire purpose of the premarital agreement was to avoid the litigation that Ms. Deline instituted. Well, the so, purpose of the premarital agreement was the parties to stake out their respective claims, but didn't the premarital agreement itself say if the parties couldn't agree as to what was joint property that they could then pursue the issue in a court of competent jurisdiction? That, that is true. After a period, so the agreement says upon separation or divorce, jointly owned property would be divided equally. It said the parties would try to reach in good faith um, within 120 days what that division and value would look like. If they couldn't reach an agreement, then yes, Judge Wood, they could apply to a court of competent jurisdiction to determine the value or distribution of that property. So that is correct. It, it involved more than simply giving up rights. It also talked about how property would be divided upon separation or divorce. But the harm, again, from bringing claims that had been that Ms. Deline promised not to bring was the harm that Mr. Keene <laughs> suffered by having to appear and litigate this case for um, more than a year until those claims were dismissed. So I, I don't think it would be moot to say that the claim for breach of contract um, disappeared simply because she eventually dismissed those claims. There, again, is no dispute as to the validity of the agreement, and frankly, there's no dispute as to the breach. I mean, there, there's not really a dispute about what happened. Um, in fact, Ms. Deline admitted in her reply that she did take the 285000 and she admitted that she did take some amount from the joint bank accounts. So to the extent those are breaches, and that is why Mr. King moved for offensive summary judgment, because those facts were not in dispute. Now, of course, the element of damages, going to your question, Judge Wood, the element of damages was still outstanding, which is why it was a motion for partial summary judgment. 
That has yet to be determined, and Mr. King never had an opportunity to explain what his damages were from either the taking out of the 285000 from the removal of the money from the accounts, or from the violation of the other terms of the agreement. Again, Mr. Keene was seeking relief. He brought a claim for breach of contract and specific performance, and he was entitled to pursue that. The district court erred in taking that right away from him and dismissing his claims. The second issue, and, and somewhat related, was the district court's analysis of debt. So in a separate order, the district court held that it had no authority under the agreement to classify, value, or distribute debt. Again, there were several problems with this analysis. First was that the court misconstrued the term debt. The term debt was not specifically defined in the agreement, but it, it appears that the district court interpreted debt to mean anything that had been taken. Um, for example, the, the fact that Ms. Delane had taken $15,000 from a joint savings account, the district court said was debt, um, and, and we would disagree with that characterization and say that's not what the common meaning of debt is. If I remove Well, what the about the 285000 Is that debt? The, the, the loan that was incurred to obtain the 285000 certainly is debt. Yes, Your Honor. So, but the equity line of credit itself cannot be considered debt. Correct? No, not at all. There was nothing to repay. Okay. I mean, the parties in 2017 created the option for future debt to be created down the line. Mm -hmm. But in 2017, when the equity line of credit was established, there was nothing to repay. There was no debt or charge or liability. It was simply an opportunity to um, get advances, as they're called under the agreement, down the line. Now. Again, a year later, Ms. Deline did that without Mr. Keene's knowledge or consent and got the 285000 for her use and benefit. It was at that point that a debt was created. And of course, that money went into her separate account that Mr. Keene had no access to and still has had no access to since that time. Does the parties dispute about when their date of separation, does that matter in terms of whether this was a marital debt or a date that was a a debt that was taken out during separation? It does not matter, Judge okay. Collins, because the agreement said the agreement is not contingent on separation. The district court here created um, this a new concept called active marriage, seemed to interpret the agreement to say that debts incurred during an active marriage should somehow be treated differently than debts incurred after an active marriage. Um, the district court didn't explain what active marriage meant in in that judge's mind, and it's certainly not laid out in the agreement. The well, doesn't agreement. the agreement uh, separate things that happen during the marriage and things that happen during separation and divorce? Uh, there are separate headings, Judge Collins, but of course a debt incurred even while the parties are separated is still during the marriage. In other words, the, the marriage is existing whether you're living together or not. The marriage exists until the time of divorce, which actually terminates the marriage. So any debt that was occurred prior to separation, at the time of separation, or after separation, before divorce, was all debt that was incurred during the marriage. And that's important because the, this was an important provision of the premarital agreement that addressed debt. So Judge Wood, you asked about property. Certainly there are property issues, fights about what belonged to who and what, how much it was worth. But there was also this issue of debt that was specifically laid out in the agreement. And the agreement said that neither party could do exactly what Ms. Deline did here, that neither party could contract debt on which the other party was liable unless they would hold them harmless or indemnify them. Ms. Deline did precisely what the agreement was 
supposed to preclude in that she got $285,000 for her sole use and benefit and incurred debt on which Mr. Keene is individually liable. She has refused to hold him harmless or indemnify him to this day. Is there, is there any evidence in the record that, of that? I mean, it's sort of evidence of a negative, but... Uh, evidence of That, that she has refused to hold him harmless or indemnify um, I, mean, I, I guess I, there's not specific evidence of that. Other of a than, negative, uh, right. Okay. Right. There, there was no dispute. I don't think there's any dispute that she has had sole access to the funds, um, and there's no dispute that she is the one who can control what happens with paying down that loan. So well, that loan was obtained through an equity line of credit, right? And then wasn't the house ordered to be sold and the equity line to be paid and the realtor's fees to be paid and then the proceeds distributed to the parties? And um, did that occur? That's, so that's partially correct, Judge Wood. To, to answer your second question, no, it has not occurred yet. And in fact, the, the, this court granted the writ of supersedious to stay the effect of the court's ruling. So um, the sale has not occurred yet. But to answer your question, the judge ordered the sale of the house, taking out the commission for the realtor, paying off the first mortgage, and then ordered that 285, slightly less, 284 and change thousand be placed in trust with the clerk of court to be dealt with at some unknown point in the future. I mean, the, the problem with this order is that the district court had previously said, I have no authority to handle debt, to deal with debt. It's out of my control. And then in the subsequent order held not only that it was going to partially address debt by ordering paying off the first mortgage, but then also said that the, the 285000 need to be placed in trust to be dealt with. Frankly, it's unclear how that could possibly be dealt with under the court's orders. Um, if, there, if not under the court's orders, how could that be dealt with? Is there another action that can happen? Are those actions barred? Is it just a magical agreement that has to happen? Is that the only way? I mean, there, there is other litigation between the parties pending in Superior Court. Um, I, I, I frankly don't know <laughs> how, how that would work. The court's um, orders don't deal with it, correct? And the, the parties the, haven't dealt with it. That is correct. And correct. The, the district court's um, judgment, this final order certainly did not address it. I mean. The other option, I guess, is if one party dies and it goes into probate or something like that. Um, but that is a fundamental problem with the court's order, not only contradicting its previous order from a few weeks earlier, but also leaving, leaving that question unanswered of, of what's going to happen to that. But more fundamentally, again, under the undisputed facts here, there should have been no reason for that. It was clear under the agreement that Ms. Deline incurred the debt in violation of the agreement, and she either needed to pay it back entirely, or at least do some action, Judge Collins, to your question of holding Mr. Keene harmless and indemnifying him. But instead, he's on the hook for this money that she has the sole access to. This, this problem with the debt order permeates other issues in the case in that um, the judge also held that the 15,000 taken from the party's joint account was debt, and then in the subsequent order made some effort to handle that by um, apparently attributing some amount to Mr. Keene and some amount to Ms. Deline. But again, the, the money had already been transferred out of the joint account and the district court made no explanation or provision of how 
that um, distribution was intended to occur. Would you contend that that was a fattened asset rather than a debt? Uh, yes, Your Honor. The, the money is property, and it was jointly owned property that Ms. Deline improperly took for herself at the time of separation, when again, the agreement said jointly owned property was to be divided equally <laughs> between the parties. There's no dispute as to the amount there. There was, there was nothing for the court to do there other than divide that amount equally between the parties. Again, the, this was not an equitable distribution case. This was not an- That's how the case started, right? Uh, that, that is- State, state the, uh, the case started as chapter 50 court cases, uh, alimony, post-separation support, equitable distribution, those things. So Ms. Keene intended to bring a domestic court case. We agree? Uh, agreed, yes. You representing, Mr. you didn't represent Mr. King at trial, but Mr. Keene intended to bring a breach of contract case. Agreed. But he brought it in domestic court as a counterclaim. Yes. Um, there's still issues pending arising from this action. How is it not interlocutory? How do we have jurisdiction well, to hear your case? Well, that's what I'm saying. There, there's nothing pending in this action. There, there are issues pending in other litigation in Superior Court between the parties, but in the in the language of VZ, which both parties cited, everything has been judicially determined. The district court has already said it can't deal with anything else, and it has dealt with everything that it believed it could deal with. So there's nothing left for the district court to do. Um, Judge Collins asked about what might happen in some other litigation or proceeding. That there may be something there, but as far as this case, it was a final judgment because the trial court did everything that it thought it could do. Are you relitigating some of the same issues in Superior Court that you litigated in District Court? The, they're not the same issue. For, for example, there, there's certainly overlap. Um, for example, Mr. Keene dismissed his claim for conversion in the District Court action and brought that claim in the Superior Court action, believing that it was more appropriate for the Superior Court to address along with other claims. So did that answer your question? I mean, there's certainly overlap. Um, it, but the, it seems to me like we brought a contract case in District Court Maybe we didn't like the results, so now we'll go to the Superior Court, which as a court would also have jurisdiction. Maybe we get a different outcome there. I see. Um, no, Your Honor, it's not, it's not the same claim. So there's no, there's no dispute in the Superior Court actions about these sorts of things, enforcing the premarital agreement or things of that nature. But Judge Carpenter, that is an important point because, as you said, Mr. Lean brought these claims in district court, which normally under Chapter 50, under, under Chapter 7A would be proper in the district court division. She then dismissed those claims in light of the premarital agreement that was inserted. And at that point, all that was left was Mr. Keene's counterclaims under the contract and conversion at that point, and then eventually Ms. Deline's claim under the agreement. At that point, you're, you're right, the action should have been transferred to Superior Court. It was, at that point, a Superior Court case. Now, I haven't found any the authority. Court, the district court certainly has jurisdiction to adjudicate it if the parties agree that you want to take your otherwise qualifying superior court case to district court instead. Well, I think that depends on if it's a jurisdictional issue or a venue issue. And, and that's what I was, I haven't found any case that addresses that situation. And I don't think either party has cited a situation. So if it was a subject matter jurisdiction issue, which of course can be raised at any time and cannot be waived, then the district court proceedings were void at the point where it was no longer proper in district court. Well, the qualifying, the, the qualifying piece for superior court is mounting controversy 25,000 or more, right? Or more than 25,000. District court's a lower amount, so you'll always meet the district court threshold 
before you meet the superior court threshold. So either court could have adjudicated the case. Well, and there's certainly, I mean, the statute says that the general rule is both divisions have concurrent jurisdiction. So that's, if, if this court is to view it as a venue issue, you know, that both courts could have adjudicated the matter, then still, that means the district court had to adjudicate the entire matter. There's no, there's no basis for the district court to say, I can enforce and interpret one provision of the premarital agreement, but I can't enforce or interpret the remainder of the agreement. Would you agree that the, um, that the agreement does not allow for distribution of debt? The agreement, that is true. And if the, it is, go ahead. But what it does say is that neither party will incur debt on which the right. other so, one So, yeah, two different. One is a claim for breach of contract, and the other is whether the court could distribute it, correct? Correct. Okay. And, and I don't think either party requested a distribution of, the debt. of debt. It was, Mr. Keene asserted that there was debt for which he was being held liable improperly in violation of the agreement. The other, um, the, the final component that I just want to touch on briefly was the actual value or distribution of jointly owned property. Here, the, the final order by the district court didn't grapple with any of the definitions in the premarital agreement. It decided what was separately owned or jointly owned based on, it, it appears that the district court approached this as an equitable distribution case. In fact, at one point it describes distributing marital property brought in a chapter 50 court, right? It, it was, although again, those claims had been dismissed. So by the, you know, three years later, by the time it got to adjudication, it was no longer a chapter 50 case, Judge Carpenter. It's but it was, it was still, the question is, it was brought in a chapter 50 court. You wanted to transform it after the fact to a non-chapter 50 case, which you can do, but it was brought in a chapter 50 court. That's the lens that you started viewing the case from. Well, I, I, I would frankly disagree, Judge Carpenter. I think that the lens changed when those claims were dismissed. In other words, the, the court had no authority to analyze the equitable distribution factors or the, the you know, analyze marital misconduct under the alimony statute or whatever. At, by the time it came for adjudication in April 2022, it was solely a contract case. It, it was no longer a Chapter 50 case. Um, and that's important because it's the terms of the contract that should have governed the analysis. So in analyzing what's jointly owned property, the district court should have applied the definitions in the agreement. And same thing for separately owned property. The parties were very clear on what was going to be separate and what was going to be joint. And the, the district court simply failed to apply those terms. So at the very least, there needs to be a new trial so that the trial court can apply the appropriate terms as the parties agreed. Can you talk to me a little bit about what you think should have been before a jury and how, how that process didn't play out like you wanted it to? Yeah, the, the principal issue that should have been before the jury is the breach of contract claim. Just like any other um, breach of contract action in, in this state that, you know, if it's adjudicated, typically goes to a jury. That was um, Mr. Keene's right. So this is important because Ms. Deline was the one who originally invoked the jury demand in her pleading. And at that point, Mr. Keene had no additional obligation to seek a jury demand. The, the law is that once a party seeks a jury demand, it's there for the rest of the case unless, unless the parties... Um, stipulate otherwise. And it's important because I know Ms. Deline argued that Mr. Keene somehow waived that right later. But importantly, in, in the later end of the case when his breach of contract claim had already been dismissed, there was no breach of contract claim to assert a jury demand then. 
the parties agreed that when it came to value or distribution under the premarital agreement, that that could be decided by the court as in a, in a bench trial. Did that answer your question? It did. Colin? Yeah, thank you. Just taking a step back, Your Honors, and, and then I'll sit down so I can save time for rebuttal. The, the issue here is that the parties entered an agreement, yes, to divide property, but also with the whole goal that if they separated or divorced, it would be easy. It would be simple. They would keep their separate property. They would divide their joint property equally, and that simply didn't happen here. Unfortunately, because of the tactics of Ms. Deline, Mr. Keene was left on the hook for a loan that he has no access to the, the underlying property. He was deprived of jointly owned property and was not allowed to pursue his right to seek relief for Ms. Deline's decision to bring claims that she promised not to bring. For all of those reasons, we would ask that the district court's judgment be affirmed. Okay. Thank you. May it please the court, counsel. My name is Preston Odom, and I, along with my law partner, John Burek of James McElroy and Deal, are here uh, this afternoon before the court representing the plaintiff appellee in this case, Amy Deline, formerly uh, Amy Keene. Mr. Nelson is correct that the terms of the prenuptial agreement that Mr. Keene, his client, a lawyer, drafted uh, before the parties married um, is controlling. Judge Young faithfully followed the language of that contract in classifying and dividing what would have been joint property um, and also um, construing uh, with respect to the $285,000 issue on the advance made on the HELOC, the controlling paragraph of the prenuptial agreement uh, which is paragraph 3B. Mr. Nelson said a number of times that my client breached the prenuptial agreement by incurring debt uh, under the HELOC in connection with jointly owned property. There's no dispute that the former marital residence is jointly owned property. Mr. Keene, in drafting the prenup that he is um, talking about here, says debts of the parties in regards to any debt presently own, owed or hereafter incurred by either of us, either individually or jointly, we agree that, and then there are three subsections. Mr. Keene talks about subsections A and C, but not B. And what the HELOC relates to is B. And it says, as to any debt that may be incurred to acquire or in connection with jointly owned property. Yeah, but this, this 285000 that she took out wasn't in connection with the house. The line of equity was in connection with the house, or I guess they got it because on the house, but it doesn't have anything to do with the house itself. The debt is incurred in connection with the house. But it wasn't in connection with the house. The, the, the equity line was there because of the house, but, but her loan didn't have anything to do with the house. So it's secured by the house. the house, I think, is what her what I my argument and question was. The question was, is, well, is she going to spend it on the house? Though, like, remodel the house? Is it in connection with the house? Is it to benefit the house? Is kind of how you would look at it. Otherwise, it's just money she's putting in her account for her own benefit. 
Well, Your Honor, Mr. King could have done the same thing. Um, they, they were both, they both signed the HELOC agreement. Yeah, but that's not my question. My question is, was she going to spend this $285,000 on the house, in connection with the house, or was she going to do something else with it? Your Honor, we would contend that the plain language doesn't say it has to be spent on the house or spent in connection with the house. It's incurred in connection with jointly owned property. It's secured by the house. Mr. Keene drafted the agreement. And if there's any ambiguity, which we don't think there is, it has to be construed against him. So if the $285,000 is in your client's account and she got it from the house, wouldn't that then become jointly owned property? Uh, your Honor, uh, I don't believe that it would become jointly owned property. It, it would, it's still debt owed to the bank. Well, if there's money that's sitting in her account, isn't that an asset? They might balance each other out, but isn't that money that's sitting in the account actually an asset? I think half of it would be for each of them. Yes. And then each of them would be jointly liable for the $285,000 on this joint piece of property? Uh, yes, Your Honor. Okay. Yes. So paragraph 3B we think controls. There's no dispute that the former marital residence is jointly owned property. Can I ask you about subsection C that says any debt that may be incurred to acquire separately owned property? Couldn't we read the $285,000 as being taken out to acquire her own separate property? As to any debt that may be incurred to acquire or in connection with Just separately to, to owned property. To acquire separately owned property, what, what, what was the $285,000 to be used for? There is no, uh, there is no um, evidence in the record of what that was to be used for. Is that important? I don't think so, because I think B controls. What if we disagree with you and we think C controls? Then what would your argument be? <laughs> Uh, then, uh, then, uh, then my argument would be that if it's jointly owned property, then it would be equally divided. And then they would each be equally liable on the funds. Um, but I don't think it was a breach of the premarital agreement for Ms. Keene to take out the advance, just as it wouldn't have been Mr. Keene breaching the premarital agreement by taking out uh, money on a HELOC um, can, in connection with jointly owned property. They're saying it was a breach. It wasn't a breach. Nor was it a breach of the agreement uh, for Ms. Deline to bring the Chapter 50 claims in the first instance. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a rather tortured analysis um, that Mr. Keene employs to say that Judge Young, in granting summary judgment on the breach of contract claim that was actually pled in their counterclaim, um, that uh, there's a Miss Keene or Miss Deline was not bringing an affirmative defense of waiver. The analysis was that the language of the premarital agreement was waiver or release language which differs from language that's a covenant not to sue. Uh, we've cited the window world uh, decision from the business court that relied on a, a North Carolina Supreme Court decision that uh, distinguishes 
waivers and releases on the one hand from covenants not to sue on the other. And when you have waiver and release language like you have here, then you can do exactly what Mr. King did and say, hey, you waived, you waived these claims that you brought, you released them, so dismiss them. And they were dismissed. And so I do think that the dismissal of those claims um, mooted uh, any argument that there was a breach, if there could be a breach of contract. But going back to the window world case, um, when you have waiver or release language, that provides a defense, a shield. When you have a covenant not to sue, then the Supreme Court of North Carolina said in the Simpson case that uh, the remedy for that is to bring a breach of covenant claim, um, that it's not an actual defense, that the, the remedy is a breach of contract um, claim. But we don't have a covenant not to sue here. And that's exactly why Judge Young correctly uh, granted summary judgment for my client, Ms. Deline, as the non-moving party on the only breach of contract claim that was before him at that point, uh, which was uh, him saying that she had violated or breached the premarital agreement by bringing those domestic claims that had been waived in the prenup. Um, and, and, and another way to look at it, too, is they, they, they talk a lot about the remedy of specific performance. Well, specific performance of the waiver or release would lead to dismissal of the claims. And so um, I'm, I'm just kind of I'm perplexed as to what result they really wanted um, if they obtained the dismissal of the claims that they said shouldn't have been brought in the first place. Uh, so again, what about what about their argument on page six of the reply brief that that just by notice pleading they had actually raised these breach of contract claims for the monies that were taken? Your Honor, I, I, th I agree that general notice pleading um, does apply, but uh, they specifically pled what the aspects or theory of breach was in the next paragraph after they've incorporated by reference. They didn't say, for all of the reasons set forth above, you've breached the contract. They say that the demands for payment under Chapter 50 and for insurance and those types of things constituted the breach of contract. And so while there were uh, allegations raised about certain other things that they said might be wrong, they did not say that was a breach of the premarital and uh, not only Judge Young construed it that way, but Judge Hedrick did twice. Once in the sanctions order and once in the order denying my client's motion for partial summary judgment, which contrary to what Mr. Keene says, did not deal with breach of contract. What happened procedurally was at that point in time, earlier in the case when Judge Hedrick was presiding, Ms. Deline moved for partial summary judgment on then pending claims for conversion, punitive damages, and attorney's fees. And Judge Hedrick um, determined that genuine issues of material fact existed such that my client couldn't get judgment as a matter of law on the punitive damages, conversion, and attorney's fees claims that were pending at that time. Later on, Mr. Keene moved for partial summary judgment, not on those claims, but on the breach of contract counterclaim that he had specific and specific performance. And so, and then uh, Mr. Keene voluntarily dismissed 
the conversion and punitive damages claims that had previously been pending. And so uh, Mr. Keene suggests that there's conflict between what Judge Young did later on in the case and what Judge uh, Hedrick did earlier in the case, and that's simply not so. The, the same claims weren't even involved. He had dismissed the claims that were at issue uh, when Judge Hedrick entered his uh, ruling denying my client's motion for partial summary judgment. So there is no conflict between those two ju judges' decisions. Um, so, and, and, and also, um, Mr. Keene in his brief uh, suggests that my client may have breached the premarital agreement by uh, not um, agreeing on the front end to equally divide what w might have been jointly owned property. Um, but he actually voluntarily dismissed um, that theory of his breach of contract claim uh, in that same notice of voluntary dismissal that he um, withdrew his conversion and punitive damage claims. Can you talk to us a little bit about your argument that this is, in fact, premature, and what is the court supposed to do with that $284,000 that might be an escrow? Your Honor, it's, it, it's almost, it, it takes me back to, I guess it was, what, uh, Bush versus Gore, the, the hanging chad. <laughs> um, there's, it, there, there is this piece uh, and a big issue um, that's, that would be left um, to deal with, and if the parties can't deal with it by consent, then, it, then a, the court is going to have to deal with that $285,000 minus a couple dollars um, that uh, Judge Young ordered to be set aside and, and held in trust or escrow by the clerk uh, pending um, resolution of the dispute over that $285,000. So um, who, who has jurisdiction over the resolution of that dispute? What kind of action is that? Aren't those actions barred because we've already got actions regarding that money that were either dismissed or decided? Talk to me it, about how that's supposed to work. Sure. Um, Your Honor, it, I, I guess it depends on how this court rules. If this court determined that the $285,000 were jointly owned property, then that would be something that under the premarital agreement might be dealt with by the trial court. Uh, if it's debt, uh, then and, and controlled by 3B, then we would contend that it would be uh, a claim for or, or a request for specific performance for Mr. Uh, Keene to pay, to be equally li or liable for one half of that. And so you would split that 284. You're, you're saying that there, that somebody's going to have to bring another action or, or another, or, or tee it back up in this case um, by way of a motion for judicial assistance or something along those lines. There, it can't stay in the courthouse for eternity. It's going to have to be dealt with. And so that is, that is one issue that we think that it's a, it's a big one that's still pending at the trial court. And so uh, Judge Carpenter uh, asked about whether this is interlocutory. We, I, I, that does make this, in my opinion, interlocutory. Um, another jurisdictional issue uh, that uh, I noticed um, in preparing for oral argument is with respect to the order that Judge Young entered that talked about whether he had power over debt or not. Um, there's two notices of appeal that were filed in this case. One designated an appeal from 
uh, Judge Young's amended summary judgment order and the order that dealt with Mr. Keene's Rule 62, uh, 52, 59, and 60 orders. And then there's a later notice of appeal that designates for appeal the distribution classification order at the end. But Mr. Keene never designated an appeal from the order that was dealing with the debt aspect and the, and the debt dispute order. Uh, there is uh, language in that later notice of appeal that uh, parrots what 1-278, uh, yeah, of our general statutes says um, with respect to appeals from intermediate orders. Uh, but there's no discussion in the briefs with respect to whether review would be appropriate under 1-278. Can you point me to the specific order that you're talking about that wasn't appealed from? Do you know where it is on the yes, record? Yes, Your Honor. It, it, it is um, it's found on record pages 464 through 474 of the record, and it's the order on the power of the court to classify, value, and distribute certain debt. And the notices of appeal are found on record pages 457 and 458 and 503 through 505. Is it possible that this is an intermediate order that we could look at as part of? I certainly think it's intermediate. Okay. I'm not sure if it meets all of the three criteria uh, that would be necessary for there, there to be a permissive uh, review of, of that order. Um, that's just not argued. So I have a question regarding the House again. Uh, it looks from Judge Young's order that neither party wanted the House, and that's the reason why the House was supposed to be sold. And obviously you can't sell a House without extinguishing all of the liens that are owed on the House, the first mortgage and the line of credit. So if you extinguish those liens and then um, you know, they, they, of course, no longer exist because they're not debt. Since the only way to sell right. the house, yes, your honor, and divide the proceeds, uh, is that would that make this issue regarding the debt a moot issue or not in your mind? Your honor, I'm not sure it would make it moot. Uh, the way I understood it would play out on, on, under the final order um, dealing with the the sale of the house was uh, it would be listed, they would sell it. There would be payment of the first mortgage, payment of the debt outstanding on the HELOC, and then the realtor's fees. And then after payment of those, then 284000 and change would be put into the clerk's office. And then we get back to what we just talked about a little bit earlier about then what happens with that. That that's the that's really the disputed Does it funds. Does become an asset, which is supposed to be divided equally between each party? Say that one more time. I missed that. Does it, that it, it, doesn't it then become an asset? It's a tangible amount of money. Doesn't that then become joint property that should be equally divided between each party? And wouldn't that make the sum value? I mean, by then the HELOC has been extinguished, it's been paid, you take the $284,000, you put it in the account, it, it's an asset, joint property, divide it between each party, so ne neither party's out any money, isn't that correct? Right, I do think that, yes, you would equally divide that remaining $284,000. That's how that dispute would be, would be resolved. So then nobody's out anything? 
I, th I, th I think under that analysis, he would still be claiming that he uh, shouldn't be liable for any of the $285,000. That would make him liable for half of it when he's saying Th you should that's, be liable that's, That would be their position. We think that that 284 under the analysis of the prenup, the way we read it and the way he wrote it, um, would be uh, that that would be equally divided. So, and just for clarification, there is no argument that she took the $285,000 for her own purpose, correct? She did not give half of it to him. She did not spend it on marital property. Your Honor, I, I don't think there's any evidence in the record about what that 285 was spent on, other than it, it wasn't it wasn't given to Mr. Keene. Uh, there are a uh, couple of other points to talk about, I think, with respect to um, the, the jury, the jury trial question. The way I understood Mr. Nelson's argument was it's really not Judge Young did anything wrong by having a bench trial that was held, um, uh, but that uh, his breach of contract claim shouldn't have gone away such that he should have been entitled to a jury trial on a breach of contract claim. And, and, um, and so that's a little different the way I hear it and the way I read it in their brief was I, I thought they were arguing that there shouldn't have been a bench trial at all. Um, so maybe they've, they've backed off of that position. Uh, but they didn't want a jury trial. They, they moved to strike the jury trial demand. Uh, they asked in their Rule 52, 59, and 60 motion that the issues be heard without a jury. And so, and, and then in his amended summary judgment order, Judge Young said, yeah, by saying that, you waived any right to a jury trial you might otherwise have had. Uh, so, and, and I don't think there's any other way you can take it. And, and uh, we also cited places uh, in... Um, several places in um, the appendix to our brief with uh, recitations of them saying, you know, there's, we don't want a jury trial. She's asked for it. We don't want it or strike it or there, but to after the fact say that there's been a violation of his constitutional rights, that there wasn't a jury trial held in this case, we just think is inconsistent with the position that was taken below. Uh, they, uh, Mr. Keene has also taken issue with some of the, uh, that, that the Judge Young's amended summary judgment order has uh, section called, uh, a section called undisputed findings of fact. And while it's not typical that you've got findings in a summary judgment ruling, both Judge Hedrick and Judge Young included those um, in their respective summary judgment rulings. And uh, <coughs> we would contend that A, it wasn't improper because a lot of those findings are just recitations of undisputed facts or the procedural history of the case. And so there's nothing untoward about it. And in any event, um, this court is not bound by findings of fact um, in reviewing a summary judgment order. And so again, we, don't, we think that's much ado about nothing on, on, on those bases. In, in closing, um, can I just ask a question? So, sure. 
Do you agree that this agreement, do you agree with this agreement, doesn't allow the trial court to distribute debt? Uh, we, we agree with that. Okay. Um, we think that the way the debt is supposed to be dealt with, uh, the parties are supposed to deal with it according to the terms of okay. the agreement. All right. And um, the $14,000 that was taken from the joint <coughs> bank account, how is that debt? Uh, Your Honor, that's a good question. Thanks. Um, I, think, uh, I think that Judge Young called it debt in one order, but then on the back end, uh, in equally dividing the totality of what he determined to be uh, jointly owned property, equalized that and actually, uh, I think it's on the uh, second to last page of his final order, uh, I think he ascribed uh, $3,000 and some change to uh, Ms. Deline and 9,000 something to uh, Mr. Keene. And so treated it as jointly owned property in that instance and, and used that in the equal division um, in the final order. So I, I, I do think it, 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 it differs conceptually from the advance on the HELOC. Okay. If there aren't any other questions, then I'll rest. Thank you. Right. Thank you. Just a few issues, Your Honor. First, as to the notice of appeal on page 503, I just wanted to clarify. It, notice was given from the final judgment, the order entered uh, June 13, 2022, and all intermediate orders of the court involving the merits and necessarily affecting the judgment. The statute specifically provides that rather than listing out every previous order that happened during a case, a party upon a final judgment is entitled to appeal from the final order as well as all intermediate orders affecting the judgment. And that's important because this question of whether it's interlocutory or not, on, on page 473 of the record, the district court said, the court declares that it has no authority to categorize value or distribute debt claimed by the parties to wit the 285,000 HELOC. In other words, the district court has already said it can't do anything with that amount. So to say that then there's still something left to be done in the district court is simply inconsistent with the district court's own rulings. Um, turning to what was alleged. Who would have jurisdiction over the money deposited in the clerk's, which judge would have jurisdiction over the money deposited in the clerk's office pursuant to, I think it was Judge Hedrick's order, the 285000 that's supposed to be deposited into the clerk's office. Who, I'm sorry, Judge Carpenter, who would have authority over that? Yep. I have no District idea. District court or Superior Court? <laughs> I mean, that, that's the problem, and I, I, I say that kind of facetiously, but that is the problem. The District Court said it doesn't have authority, and yet the final judgment was parties put it into the, the clerk, put it in trust with the clerk. And, and there's no further explanation of what's supposed to happen to that. Um, and, and we believe that's a fundamental error with the district court's <laughs> approach to this case. Um, so on, on page 16 of the record, Mr. Keene specifically alleged that without his consent, Ms. Deline has liquidated $285,000 from an equity line and over $14,000 from a jointly owned savings account. 
that the nearly $300,000 plaintiff transferred for her sole use, benefit, and control while causing defendant to also be liable for the prepayment of those amounts. That was a specific allegation in his counterclaim. And then on page 17, under breach of contract, he specifically incorporates by reference all paragraphs above as if fully set forth herein. There's no obligation in North Carolina to repeat each and every allegation under each cause of action. That would make pleadings really long and cumbersome. It's entirely appropriate to incorporate by reference previous allegations, which is what Mr. Keene did here. And specifically with regard to breach of the agreement, on, on page 25 of the record, this was the premarital agreement attached to Mr. Keene's counterclaim. We each agree that neither of us will individually contract any debt, charge, or liability for which the other party or his or her property or estate may become personally liable. That was a promise. We will not incur debt that the other party is liable for. Each party shall hold the other harmless from any claim or responsibility on any indebtedness in his or her individual name and shall fully indemnify the other party against any claim or responsibility regarding such debt. Those were the provisions that Mr. Keene alleged had been violated. Now there is evidence in the record, I believe Judge Collins, you asked on page 160 of the documentary exhibits that the money was used for um, Ms. Deline's personal expenses. Now that did come from an affidavit of Mr. Keene, but again, the reason this issue was not explored further, of course, was because the claim was dismissed. So there's no evidence in the record that the money was used in connection with the house in connection with improving the house or construction or anything related to the house. In fact, the only evidence in the record at this point is that it was solely used for her personal expenses. And she took the money, of course, as she testified in her deposition, she took the money because Mr. Keene had indicated that um, they were going to separate and that she wanted some protection. It was the same reason she took the additional money from the joint account. I believe when I sat down earlier, I said we would request that the court affirm the district court judgment um, you did say that. I, thank you. That was a moment where I sat down and, um, and you know, and wanted to And they were cry. celebrating in your... So, <laughs> to clarify so it's clear, we would ask that this court reverse <clears throat> the district court's judgment. Thank you. Thank you both for excellent arguments.